The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, the president of the Cancer Support Community, filling in for Kim Tebaldo, who is off this week. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 170 locations worldwide, online at www cancersupportcommunity.org and by telephone helpline and I'm going to give you that number later in the show I want to give you a chance to grab a pencil to write with Today's episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer is sponsored by Insight Corporation, and we certainly thank them for their sponsorship. We are talking today about a very specific type of myeloproliferative neoplasm called polycythemia, I'm sorry, polycythemia vera, and the, the myeloproliferative neoplasms and polycythemia vera belong to a very rare group of blood cancers. As a matter of fact, only about 14,500 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with a myeloproliferative neoplasm um, in this year. And so we felt like it's really important to help raise the awareness of these types of cancer and also to help uh, individuals create a community around uh, these type of cancers. So to join me in helping to, to do that, um, two distinguished individuals. Number one is Jack Sprague, who is a 74-year-old retired public educator. During your education career, Jack served as an elementary teacher, principal at all levels, and central administrator superintendent for 17 years. After retirement, Jack and his wife moved to rural Colorado, where he enjoys horseback riding, hiking, camping, and golf in the mountains of beautiful western Colorado. And I've seen some photos from out there, Jack. I, I, I can understand why you're enjoying your time uh, out there. It's beautiful there. Yes, it is. So you have, um, you've, you've been a pilot. You've got a commercial and instrumental rating for 50 years. And you are also living with polycythemia vera. And thank you for being with us, Jack. Also today, we are joined by Dr. Angela Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is a physician scientist who researches hematologic malignancies and integrates research into the clinical care of patients with these diseases. So not only does Dr. Fleischman research the disease, but she's also taking care of patients bench to bedside. Um, Dr. Fleischman has a longstanding interest in blood cell development, which started during her PhD graduate studies at Stanford. 
After completing her MD-PhD at Stanford in 2005, she moved to Oregon Health and Science University for her internal medicine residency and medical oncology fellowship. She joined the University of California, Irvine in 2013 as an assistant professor to develop her independent laboratory group focusing on the pathogenesis of myeloproliferative neoplasms, which is a form of a chronic leukemia. Her overarching research goal is to identify what drives disease initiation in MPN and to ultimately translate scientific discoveries into therapeutic benefits for patients who are living with an MPN. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll say in advance, thank you for your work, Dr. Fleischman. Um, I know that we've made significant advances here, um, and much of that is attributable to the work that, that you've done. So thank you for that, and also thank you for being here. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here, and I'm delighted to have this opportunity to, to talk today. So let's let's start with you. I sort of mentioned um, tripping over my tongue a little bit <laughs> about MPNs, but can you just give us and, and our listeners in particular more information about MPNs and what what type of diseases fall into that category? Okay, so uh, a myeloproliferative neoplasm is sort of a um, uh, umbrella. Um, term that can describe uh, three um, different diseases which have a lot of similarities. The three diseases that are included in myeloproliferative neoplasms are polycythemia vera, um, essential thrombocythemia, and myelofibrosis. And all myeloproliferative neoplasms are characterized by uh, an expansion of mature blood cells. Um, so basically, there are too many blood cells in, in the blood and in the bone marrow and in the spleen, and it depends on what type of blood cell is expanded that determines what type of myeloproliferative neoplasm a person has. And this differs from things like acute leukemias, where an acute leukemia is where you have an expansion of immature cells, and cells should mature in your bone marrow and shouldn't come out into the blood, but in an acute leukemia, they're coming out into the blood. In a MPN, there's too many cells in the blood, but there are cells that should be there anyway. So it's just there's too many cells that sh- should be in the blood, but there's just too many there. Is that a is that which a, sounds a, like they're they're yeah they're but it sounds to me like there there's a, a there would be a problem. There's not enough room for all of them. Correct, and there can be many problems um, that stem from having too much too much blood. Um, the most common problem um, and what's the focus of therapy is, um, is blood clots. So MPN patients have a higher risk of getting a blood clot than a normal person and a lot of the therapies are geared towards reducing the risk of blood clots uh, by taking aspirin, by taking medications that reduce the number of blood cells as well as taking um, some other medications that um, would reduce one's, one's risk of blood clots. Also, symptoms are a very um, a characteristic feature of myeloproliferative neoplasms, and um, many people with MPNs have, have symptoms. In particular, patients with myelofibrosis have the most uh, symptom burden, um, but both ET and PV patients uh, can also have um, pretty debilitating symptoms um, that need to be, need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. So why don't, why don't you stay on that theme um, for our, our listeners, and what are some of the, the common symptoms that, that patients see? So, for example, in polycythemia vera, uh, patients uh, can um, have things like headache, 
um, from too, their, their blood is very thick and polycythemia vary you have too many red blood cells so have a very thick blood um, which could cause headaches and sort of also um, uh, a feeling of fogginess a sort of mental fogginess can also have a pretty Extreme problems with itching, just horrible itching, um, particularly after hot showers. Also, um, some PV patients can look very pink, have very, very rosy cheeks from having, having a lot of, a lot of blood. Uh, patients with, uh, myelofibrosis, uh, can be extremely tired, um, have just debilitating fatigue that really negatively impacts their quality of life, um, can also um, have an enlarged spleen, which can cause them problems with abdominal pain or fullness. And then also because the spleen can squish the stomach, um, can make it such that uh, they can't eat very well. They just eat a little bit and then they get really full. Um, also, some other problems that are more significant in myelofibrosis but can also be seen in PV and ET are things like um, fevers, night sweats. So basically, you're feeling like you've basically got the flu all the time, just feeling pretty miserable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is it's a significant problem for, for patients, our, our symptoms. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so talk to us about polycythemia vera specifically. So how is that, how is that different than the other two types of MPN? So in polycythemia vera, um, the major problem is the expansion of the red blood cells. Uh, so um, there's too many, too many red blood cells. In some patients with polycythemia vera, they can also have elevated white blood cells and, and platelets as well. But the most, um, it, the cell line that's the most elevated is usually the red blood cells. And uh, that can cause them problems with with blood clots and the itching and um, and also some headaches. And um, would you like me to discuss uh, the specific treatments for polycythemia vera at this point in time, or wait until later? Yeah, why don't we wait until later? Okay. I just want to I, I want to try to make sure that we've got a good level set of of what it what it is first. Okay. Um, and, and and I was I was just wondering if you could just talk to us about how polycythemia vera or any of the MPNs are uh, diagnosed. So usually, um, so they can be diagnosed in in a number of ways. Um, a lot of times. Uh, People can, on their yearly physicals, when they get their blood counts, um, their physician notices that there's some abnormality and that the patient really didn't really notice that there was anything wrong other than their doctor told them that their blood counts were off. So that's a pretty common way that that people can be diagnosed. And in retrospect, um, if you have a number of years of of blood counts sort of, um, you know, in a folder or something like that, a lot of times you can look back at previous years, and you could co- sort of see things inching up. Um, that's that's very common in in these diseases that you could you could see a trend coming for many years that n- not necessarily somebody missed, but mm-hmm. just were, was never was a little on the high side, I guess you could say, but never getting above the level where it would it would trigger a red flag per se. Um, other um, reasons why people can be um, sort of come come to medical attention is if they have a blood clot, for example, they get a blood clot in their leg, they get a stroke, they have a heart attack, and then they're in the hospital and part of the hospitalization is looking at blood counts and and then they find, wow, that the blood counts are elevated. Um, That's another common way 
Um, patients with myelofibrosis uh, can have low blood counts and have, can have some severe anemia. So one of the possibilities when somebody comes in uh, with a problem of anemia can be myelofibrosis. That's on, on, the, list of, on the list of possibilities um, with somebody who's presenting with anemia. Okay. Jack, I, I want to go to you and just quickly um, l- share with us your story. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we've laid out a picture of sort of what the average patient may experience, but is this what you've experienced? And, and just, just share with us what your experience has been. Well, uh, thank you. Actually, I was diagnosed with uh, polythysemia vera uh, 12 years ago. Uh, uh, that diagnosis came about after my heart went into atrial fibrillation, and I never had any uh, type of problem like that. Uh, went to the emergency room, and uh, they took care of the atrial fibrillation, but of course in the testing also found uh, uh, a adequate red blood count a level of 62, which is pretty high. I uh, had a very wise uh, emergency doctor there who happened to be a cardiologist, and he said, um, Let's find out why your heart was stressed so much. And he said, I think it was that very thick blood that it was pumping. Uh, he called it pumping sludge. Uh, and he said, you know, I'll tell you right up front, I suspect you may be facing, a, a, he called it a disease, uh, a blood disease called polythysemia vera. Uh, a bone marrow test uh, verified that and uh, so I began the protocol of uh, treatment, which uh, included uh, uh, almost nine years of uh, monthly phlebotomies and, and sometimes uh, in the latter uh, period uh, weekly phlebotomies, which did a, a good job of taking care of the red blood cells. It uh, did not do anything to deal with my continually rising platelet count. And, of course, I suffered all the side effects during those eight or nine years of being very, very anemic, and, and those were significant uh, side effects. So I had to move to step two of the treatment protocol, which was hydroxyurea. Uh, I could not tolerate hydroxyurea, uh, even at the lowest dosage. It just... Uh, uh, tore up my tongue and mouth and uh, caused it to practically swell shut. Uh, so I was a bit of a, in a bit of a bind. I uh, did not uh, look forward to the latter parts of the treatment protocol, which gets into interferon, uh, a pretty strong uh, chemo. And I very, very luckily got on... Uh, been on that uh, 
drug for three years, and I've had just absolutely wonderful uh, results. I'm totally normal, <laughs> uh, almost totally normal, and uh, uh, that's my story up to this date. Great. Well, thank you. And we are going to run run to a quick commercial break, but when we come back, I want to talk to you about your awareness of MPNs and um, polycythemia vera. So this is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored by the Insight Corporation, and we have got to take a commercial break. Please join us shortly. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, standing in for Kim Tebaldo. And we are here today with Jack Sprague, who is currently living with polycythemia vera and living well with polycythemia vera, uh, which is a rare form of blood cancer. And Dr. Angela Fleischman, an assistant professor in the Department of Hematology and Oncology at the University of California, Irvine. And Jack, when we went to a commercial break, you were sharing with us um, how well that you were doing. And um, I, I wanted to just to just check something with you because I got a sense that when you were diagnosed, you had no idea about MPNs or polycythemia vera, any of that. Well, uh, that's absolutely uh, correct. Uh, uh, <clears throat> although my father, uh, 40 years ago, had been diagnosed and lived for many years with some sort of a, a leukemia, uh, I really had never heard of polythysemia vera. I had heard of something called polythysemia because we live here in the high elevations of western Colorado. And some of the miners up at the 10,000-foot level have to come down now and then from having polythysemia. But that's very different than polythysemia vera. So I had had no knowledge of, of uh, either one. And uh, interestingly... Uh, when I was diagnosed and for some time after that, I wasn't even aware it was considered a cancer. <laughs> the term uh, uh, blood disorder, blood disease, bone marrow, uh, malfunction, etc. was used. Obviously, I knew I was uh, being treated by oncologists and uh, finally it dawned on me, yes, I had, I had a cancer. Um, and we've taken it from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Fleischman, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, I know that Jack started to talk about some of the different um, the different treatments, and you know, I'll just say that we don't promote any specific treatment, and we really encourage physicians and patients to have a full conversation about risk benefits of any treatment. Um, but could you just talk through, you know, what are some of the treatments available for people with polycythemia, Vera? Okay. So our, our current... Um, goals of therapy in polycythemia vera and I guess in, in all myeloproliferative neoplasms are number one, to reduce the risk of blood clots and number two, to improve symptoms. At this point in time, um, other than a bone marrow transplant, we can't confidently say that um, medications, uh, we have medications that can alter the natural history of the disease. Um, so, so in terms of therapies, it's, it's really our standard therapies reduce blood clot and improve symptoms. And so how do we, how do we reduce one's risk of a blood clot? So almost all MPN patients, particularly PV patients, are on an aspirin 
unless it's otherwise contraindicated. And then we make a decision in terms of whether someone with PV would be high risk or low risk. High risk would be designated as someone who's had and is high risk of blood clot or low risk of blood clot. So that's what we're talking about, risk. Um, high risk would be somebody who has had a blood clot in the past or who is over 60. Um, and those, for all patients, we know now that we would like to keep their, their blood counts or their hematocrit below 45, um, either with a phlebotomy or with a ther- uh, what we call a cytoreductive therapy. Um, a cytoreductive therapy most commonly is hydroxyurea. Um, and patients with a high-risk high disease are, um, uh, are designated as... as um, Suggested to have a cytoreductive therapy, most, mostly, mostly hydroxyurea. And in terms of other medications that can currently be used for polycythemia vera, um, interferon has been, been used in the past, and of the um, medications um, that are currently available for myeloplif neoplasm, it's, it's really the only one that we have good evidence that it, it decreases the clonal burden or the, the we haven't really talked about the JAK2 mutation, um, but in MPNs and in particular PV, um, we know that the, quote, cancer cells have a mutation in, in JAK2, um, and interferon is, is really the only drug that has um, been shown to decrease um, the JAK2 allele burden. Um, more recently, ruxolitinib has now been FDA-approved uh, currently for uh, PV, that is, um, patients that are intolerant. Um, or unresponsive to um, to hydroxyurea, and uh, that is helpful in terms of reducing their um, their their need for phlebotomies as well as improved symptoms. Um, but how patients fare in terms long term with ruxolitinib, we really don't know. So I'm going to ask you just some clarifying questions for our audience. So when you use the word cytoreductive therapy. Uh-huh. You are talking about reducing those extra cells correct. by using a medication, correct? Basically, yes, killing cells, getting rid of cells. That's what cytoreductive therapy is, reducing and then blood when counts. Say that again, I'm sorry? Reducing blood counts is... Okay. And, and then when you use the word phlebotomy, you're talking about actually removing them. Yes. Like a reverse, just, a reverse um, transfusion, if you will. You take them off. Donating blood. You donate a bag of blood. That's what a phlebotomy is. Okay, great. And then um, the mention about the JAK2 mutation Mm -hmm. would lead to the question of early diagnosis. So if you know, so so let's use Jack's example. If he had a family member who was living, you know, with a a blood cancer in a a day where we may not have realized, you know, what type of blood cancer he had, um, would, would he have been a good candidate to have testing? Is the mutation at a, at a point now where we could do early testing, or is it just after diagnosis? Oh, well, you bring up a very good point, um, and we're learning more and more about this, maybe a, a topic for an, another an, another um, uh, discussion, but actually um, we're learning more and more that um, mutations that we associate with leukemias can be found in in a fraction of normal individuals. So JAK2 mutation can be found in perfectly normal individuals. So the presence of a JAK2 mutation does not always equal a myeloproliferative neoplasm. Um, so I would probably say no. Um, and also given that we can't necessarily at this point in time do anything about um, 
changing the natural history of the disease. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't see um, at this point in time a great value in screening for the JAK2 mutation. In the future, we may, we may be learning about um, what we call now the normals with the JAK2 mutation. Will they go on to develop a myeloproliferative neoplasm in the next 10 years or so? Mm-hmm. If that is the case, then yes, there would be an, an importance for early detection. But the, that data is so new that we don't know um, what it means to have a JAK2 mutation in an otherwise uh, hematologically normal individual. Mm-hmm. Great. That's that's great advice. Thank you for that. And I love the fact that the science is evolving to the point that we can have these kind of conversations. Yeah, it's it's really, really quite interesting. You know, these mutations that we always assumed were, were coincident with leukemias, it mm-hmm. seems like it, it's not so. So it's, it's, it's extremely interesting. So, so you've talked about a number of side effects that, that people experience when they are facing an MPN or polycythemia vera. So, so can you talk a little bit more, and, and you've mentioned them, the headaches, and, and I'm happy for you to repeat those. Um, and, and I'd like for you to think about um, what would you tell patients around lifestyle adjustments? You know, are, do, you, do you coach them around changes that they have to make? So I think that that's a very... Um, well, my standard, my standard reply is, you know, it's very important in any situation to live a, a healthy life. People are always asking, what can I eat? What can I, what can I do? I think a generalized, um, healthy diet, exercise, you know, people say, well, if they're tired, then they don't want to exercise. But studies are showing that if you exercise, it makes you feel better. So it actually helps out with, with fatigue to exercise. Uh, so I would say general healthy diet, in particular patients with polycythemia vera, because we um, want them to be iron deficient, um, would suggest against taking extra iron. You know, it wouldn't, wouldn't take iron pills per se. Um, and and in, in terms of, you know, changing their diet, um, I think everything in moderation. I don't want to tell somebody that if they enjoy red meat, not to eat it. You know, I, I, people should enjoy enjoy what they eat, but really have a do things in moderation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Jack, can you piggyback onto that and 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 tell us? You know, you said that you're you're doing really well. What what? How how have you come to to cope with your disease? And and you know, what lifestyle changes have you either added or stopped that, that takes you to the point where we're now? Well, I've, I think I've been uh, quite fortunate. <clears throat> uh, I did have uh, all of the uh, symptoms that Dr. Fleischman uh, has, has talked about. Uh, and going on uh, uh, the phlebotomy routine did not or does not remove uh, most of those symptoms. It, uh, it does... Uh, uh, thin the blood, uh, and of course then you begin to deal with um, uh, the iron deficiency issues, and as I mentioned earlier, eight years of severe iron, iron deficiency for me, I believe, was, was quite significant. I had a number of side effects from that. I didn't change my lifestyle really at all, uh, didn't have to, uh, other than there were some, I had a degree of fatigue that uh, probably caused me to be a little less active. Uh, since my routine on 
uh, ruxolitinib, I would say my lifestyle has gone back to totally normal. All of my uh, symptoms of both uh, uh, iron deficiency and of the disease are gone. Uh, I'm as uh, normal, as I, I think I said earlier, uh, as healthy as I could expect to be at age 74, I believe. And we're certainly happy to, uh, to, to hear that. We are going to take a quick commercial break. This episode of Frankly Speaking About Cancer is sponsored by the Insight Corporation. Please join us right after this break where we'll learn more about this very rare type of cancer. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia, Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Cancer. It's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
We are back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, and we are here with Jack Sprague, who is currently living with a polycythemia vera, which is a very rare form of blood cancer, and also Dr. Angela Fleischman, an assistant professor in the Department of Hematology and Oncology at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Fleischman, I wanted to start this segment with you, and thanks to the two of you, we've already learned quite a bit about polycythemia vera, but can you just speak to why it is that the general public knows so little about this disease? I think because it's it's a, a relatively rare disease, and I think that also it, it doesn't get the same the same press that other cancers like breast cancer breast cancer do does because um, patients with the disease can live a normal life, and they you know it's not really all that visible to the public. You know, you may have a coworker or a neighbor who has this disease, and you you may not know it. Um, and also, it just just the, the fact that it's it's not as as common as as other other things um, is probably the reason why um, why it doesn't get all that much press. Um, but honestly, I've been quite um, quite amazed that it's um, it's much more common than one would actually think. So I think it's it's getting less press than than it and than it should. Um, mm-hmm. And so, Jack, kind of piggyback onto those comments. So what is it like to be living with this type of cancer that very few people know of? And, you know, so many times I've heard from people with MPNs that because you don't look sick, that that has an implication to, you know, how people experience your cancer alongside you. Well, I think the doctor is correct. The the fact that uh, you can hopefully live a, a reasonably normal Life. Uh, I remember about the first thing I read said you uh, should expect to lead a normal life of 10 to 20 years. And once I passed 10 years, <laughs> I began to wonder. Um, yes, uh, you you mention or someone asks why you having to go down to the Mayo Clinic for a quarterly checkup, and you say because I have polycythemia vera. That means nothing to them, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so it, it appears to me that uh, uh, the, the broader community does not take it very seriously. And uh, I'm afraid there are rare instances in which the, the medical community, probably not so much the oncology, oncology part of the medical community, but some of the uh, uh, the rest of the community does not take it uh, as serious as, as it needs to be. Uh, it turned out that my hematocrit had been at the 60 or higher level for several years prior to my diagnosis and uh, simply was overlooked. Uh, uh, so we need a little more education probably for, uh, uh, for everyone um, regarding this disease. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not going to let you off the hook with that. <laughs> what would you tell someone who is newly diagnosed or not yet familiar with the healthcare system? You seem to navigate it pretty well, and I, I want to go back to clinical trials at, at some point before we um, end this show. But what would you recommend for a newly diagnosed person that they do right away that can help them become their own strongest advocate? Uh-huh. Well, uh, I think... Uh I think the Internet is a good place to start. There's worlds of information there, uh, and uh, virtually all of it is in line with best practice 
and best knowledge, uh, and in line with what Dr. Fleischman has shared with us today, uh, your own oncologists uh, probably have uh, a file uh, that's full of uh, material that they'll share with you. Uh, I think it's important to uh, see if uh, there are other patients in your local community that uh, uh, you can share thoughts and ideas with. Uh, and, of course, if, if you're not comfortable with what's happening, uh, then look further uh, within the medical community until until you are, because there's an awful lot of fine, fine oncology departments out there that are, I believe, up-to-date and, and ready to treat this uh, disease appropriately. Uh, most important thing is look out, uh, you know, do your own work along with the doctors, help them out. Mm-hmm. And so say a little bit more about that and share your experience working alongside your doctors. You know, we, we love that relationship that exists. Um, and we love it when, when the patients participate in, in that. And, and mm-hmm. as I know doctors do as well. So, you know, talk, talk our listeners through how that worked for you and what were some of the things that worked really well. Well, all of the, most of the things I just mentioned in terms of getting your hands on material and uh, getting your hands on, on uh, articles and all work very well with my oncologist. He, he's uh, very competent. Uh, but, you know, he, he's extremely busy. When it came to the clinical trial aspect, that's where only I uh, could uh, take the time and uh, got lucky uh, timing-wise and found the clinical trial that uh, has basically returned my uh, life to normal. So I just I just uh, tell people to uh, not uh, not rely a hundred percent on the medical community because mainly not because of lack of knowledge but because of lack of of time uh, and uh, look out for yourself. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Fleischman, would you add anything to that in terms of how to, to best facilitate that, that engagement with the healthcare team and the, the patient? So I agree that I think the, a great place to start is your own oncologist. And, um, you know, a lot of oncologists, depending, depending on where you are, are they all have the, be, the best intentions. But just given the limitations of, of time that they can actually spend with each patient, Unfortunately, the onus is on on the patient to to go on their own and obtain a lot of background information about their disease. And I think that um, with the the Internet, now we have a lot, there's a lot more resources for patients, uh, in particular patients with MPN, um, on the Internet. There are many um, very good sites where people can go um, to get great info about their disease. Um, There's... uh, that I've personally used, uh, the MPN Research Foundation. There's also the MPN Education Foundation or Fund. Um, there's also for PV, there's another website um, that's a, a, a personal website of a PV reporter. I think it's pvreporter.org. Um, it's, a, it's a person with, a man with PV who's reporting about his own experiences as well as um, doing interviews and, and pulling things into his, his website um, to facilitate um, sort of a kind of a one-stop shop for, for PV patients, getting all the info they need. Um, also, there's a group of um, 
There's many Facebook pages. I don't personally, I don't know how to use Facebook all that well, but I know there's a lot of Facebook pages um, for NPN support groups and things like that. There's also a lot of um, people on Twitter about uh, about NPNs. Um, as investigators, MPN investigators and physicians, um, actually, we just got an email yesterday from Ruben Mesa and from uh, Naveen Pimaraju that they're starting um, a new uh, Twitter, um, I'm not quite Twitter handle or something, I'm, like, I'm not mm-hmm. going to Twitter. Maybe a tweet um, chat? <laughs> tweet, tweet, the, the hashtag thing, hashtag yeah. MPNSM, so that's MPN social media, with the hope of really um, expanding um, our knowledge of MPNs on use of Twitter. Um, I'm not quite sure how many how many people with MPNs use Twitter. I still don't really know how to use Twitter. Um, but really, there's a, a, a big effort um, from MPN patients and MPN investigators to increase um, the awareness of MPNs um, on on social media and on the internet. That's fantastic, and hopefully, with the with the the hashtag on Twitter, that'll catch some of the attention of media and um, they can also help raise awareness in this important in this important area Um, we are going to take our final commercial break this is frankly speaking about cancer today's show is sponsored in part by insight corporation please stay with us when we return during our final segment i want to focus on caregivers and talk a little bit about the caregiver community please join us right after this break Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I am your guest host today, Linda House, and we are coming up upon our last segment here with Jack Sprague, who is currently living with polycythemia vera, which is a rare form of blood cancer, and Dr. Angela Fleischman, an associate professor in the Department of Hematology and Oncology at the University of California, Irvine. And 
you know, before the, the break, I, I hinted that we were going to start with caregivers. And I'm going to ask you both the question. Um, and Jack, maybe I'll have you answer first. But when you talk about your family members and loved ones, you know, you were surprised to find out that you had this rare type of cancer and had never heard of it before. Um, and you mentioned that, that you know, you, you and your wife are, are living together in California. T- talk about what that's like to be a caregiver um, or how, do, how does your caregiver support you? How do you support your caregiver when you are living with a myeloproliferative neoplasm? Well, let me start by just saying that uh, I think I probably had the, have the best caregiver in the world, my wife. Um, she has uh, been at my side in every doctor visit and every step of the clinical trial and is as knowledgeable uh, about the disease, uh, the cancer, as, as I am. And that allows us to uh, converse, uh, allows us to check each other's uh, uh, understanding of what we think we've learned or we've heard. Uh, that, that is so invaluable. It gives me, as the patient, uh, a tremendous amount of uh, support. Uh, the, another interesting thing that... Uh, uh, has been so helpful to me, and it's a rather mechanical thing. But uh, when you're dealing with this disease or any disease uh, of this nature, and you're dealing with multiple uh, uh, health uh, locations, clinical trial, insurance companies, etc., that can almost be overwhelming. And so my caregiver, my wife, has handled that phase of it 100%, allowing me to, to just focus and concentrate on uh, on the disease itself. So no doubt in my mind that uh, those of us that are fortunate enough to have a very close, loving caregiver are, are indeed fortunate. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Fleischman, what do you see in your practice around caregivers and, and how caregivers can, can help and also take care of themselves? So I, I, I sort of have the, the, basically the same, I'll just reiterate um, what Jack also said, is I, I think that caregivers for, for any, any type of illness, a patient with any type of illness, are, are extremely important. Um, from my perspective, when I see, um, you know, it's always helpful to have more than just the patient in the room because a lot of times they don't necessarily remember. You know, when you're the patient, some things... You don't hear everything. Where if you have a, an, another person in the room with you who's your caregiver and comes to all the appointments, there's two people hearing the things, and sometimes the caregiver will write down notes and things like that. So then, when they go home, they can say, "Okay, well, what did you get out of the appointment?" And what did you know? So they can sort of compare what each of them thought they got out of the appointment, what was said, what was the follow-up, and you know what was going, what was the plan. So I think that that's sort of one tangible very important piece that I see with with caregivers. Um, Another very interesting thing about caregivers is it's they're usually um, can tell when something is wrong um, quicker than the patient can. You know, they'll they'll get very subtle clues that um, the patient's more tired or, or, you know, they'll they'll really be very honed in 
to the to the status of of the patient's disease and, and and can really pick things up much quicker than the patient can. So I think that's really helpful too. And then also just as one would expect when you're going through something, it's always great to have somebody there that's with you just for moral support and just for for companionship as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just just a bit of summary. Um, number one have somebody there to listen and take notes and ask questions and report on the patient's health status. Uh, number two, make sure that the caregivers can take care of themselves or that the caregivers have someone to take care of them. Yes. Great. Thank you for that. So as we think about wrapping up the, the show today, Talk to us a little bit. I'm going to start with you, Dr. Fleischman, and then, Jack, I want to talk with you as well. So I want you to be prepared to answer this question, and I know that you already are. Um, tell us what you hope for for the future for myeloproliferative neoplasms or polycythemia, polycythemia vera regarding diagnosis or treatment or other research that's being done. What makes you hopeful? So I think that this is a very... I guess you could say exciting time to um, be in the MPN field. Um, the rapidity with which we're learning new things about the disease and how people get the disease, how the disease develops, is is really rapidly advancing. And I think that was it's in in big part um, to um, our knowledge about the JAK2 mutation that was just identified in 2005. So we've had about 10 years of 10 years of work to try to figure out what that mutation does um, and how it causes the disease. Um, a new mutation um, has also been identified in uh, the majority of patients who don't have the JAK2 mutation, and so we're, that's another great opportunity to learn how that causes a neoplasm. I think that the um, major advances, hopefully in the coming years, will be to um, have the ability to offer patients something that actually changes their disease. Right now, in general, we're managing their disease. We're not necessarily curing them, um, but I'm really hopeful uh, that as we gain more knowledge about what causes the disease, um, how the disease causes the symptoms that they're feeling, um, feeling more confident that we can actually... um, give patients things that will change their disease and ideally, ideally cure it. Um, so that's, that's, that's what I'm optimistic about. Mm-hmm. Jack, what, what would you say to that? Well, I, I uh, don't think I can add a great deal. Uh, I agree just totally with what Dr. Fleischman said. I think, I think the Jack 2 uh, uh, arena is, is where we're going to see the... Uh, uh, the most advancement and have seen the most advancement recently. Uh, I think some 95 or 96 percent or so of PV patients uh, all have that uh, JAK2 abnormality, and so uh, they're, they're, that seems to be a really ripe field to uh, to be researching in. And one of those leading researchers, uh, who I can only pronounce part of his name, most uh, Dr. Fleischman's going to recognize it, Dr. Serge at MD Anderson, has um, has predicted uh, that uh, within ten years he believes we we will accomplish what what the doctor just hoped for, which is a cure through managing. Uh, 
that JAK2 abnormality. I would hope also, however, that we we can better recognize that many patients, that not only myself but those that I talk to, uh, who go through eight to nine years of phlebotomies, a um, number of those patients uh, suffer some real quality of life issues due to the phlebotomies and that perhaps we can get the medical profession and the insurance companies and the drug companies on the same wavelength and and uh, get, for example, the ruxolitinum treatment earlier in the protocol without having to go through the, the phlebotomies and the uh, hydroxyurea phase of it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I know there's many issues with that, but that just comes from a patient's perspective. Yes. No, I appreciate that. So it goes back to how do we help people live as well as they possibly can while living with uh, this rare chronic blood disease, blood cancer. And so we are at the end of our time here today. I wanted to thank you both so much for joining us. And I think you really helped us learn a lot about the MPNs and polycythemia vera and the realities facing people who are living with with rare cancer. So thank you both for, for being here today. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. And I would like to also thank today's sponsor, the Insight Corporation, and to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Again, I'm your guest host, Linda House, the president of the Cancer Support Community. And just to remind you that we have information on our website about the myeloproliferative neoplasms. And we have a couple of radio shows now that we would encourage you to take a listen to, um, as well as our partner organizations that we've mentioned throughout the show. The Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and over-the-phone Support. If you or someone you know is faced with a cancer diagnosis, including a myeloproliferative neoplasm, you do not have to go through cancer alone. For more information about our programs, please visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org, where you can find a location near you or find a wealth of information. You may also call our toll-free helpline, and I warned you to grab a pen. Here is the number. It is 1-888-793-793. 9355 again 1-888-793-9355 where you will be able to speak with a licensed mental health professional Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Time until the next time be well do well live well Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. support community.org.